Good morning, class. We're in chapter 7 of Daniel this morning. Chapter 7. I got comments from last week that we covered an awful lot of material, and I knew that. I warned you. But we're going to go back and review a little bit today, and it'll lay a foundation for for chapter 8. I'm not sure how far we'll get in all of this material, but we do want you to to learn it, understand it. Uh, I'm not supposed to be teaching a lesson. I'm supposed to be teaching people. So we're going to try to accommodate and go over and review for you and that kind of thing. Chapter 7 this morning. I think I want to begin our reading uh, at uh, verse 1, verse 1 of chapter 7. And we'll make a few comments and go into prayer and then into the study. Notice, the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary. Now, we want to stop right there and say Daniel has had a number of visions. Uh, we've already pointed that out to you. He has four throughout this book. And uh, we have also pointed out to you that chapter 7 precedes, goes before chapter 5. When you get to the end of chapter 5, King uh, Belshazzar is assassinated uh, when they're taken over by the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel now is going to tell us some of the dreams that he had prior to that. And that's why we found in chapter 6, he prayed for mercy because he knew some of the things that were coming and how they were going to negatively impact his people, the people of Israel. Now, uh, I want to say some things uh, that uh, will prepare us for chapter 8, but let's have a word of prayer first. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we have of looking into your word and allowing it to minister to our hearts. Speak to folk today. Speak to my heart today. May we be encouraged by what we hear. Though it is negative in many ways, it is God showing us his sovereignty and his absolute control over humankind. May that be the case as we study. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you remember the book. We've gone over it, and that's one of the things I do when I teach a book. I go over it and over it and over it. So hopefully, when you think Daniel, you can automatically think the major movements of thought in the book. Chapter 1, Daniel's uh, incarceration and then deportation, the sovereignty of God over his deportation. Chapter 2, chapter 7, God's sovereignty. Uh, over the Gentile nations. And you remember this uh, section is in Arabic. And the second thing I want you to remember about it is it begins with four kingdoms. And in chapter 7, it ends with the four kingdoms. I would say to you, chapter 7 is perhaps the most significant. I think it is the most significant chapter in all of the book. Everything builds and follows from chapter 7. Now, the other thing I want you to remember is the outline of uh, the chapter itself. It begins in uh, chapter uh, 7, verse 1, with the occasion of the 
Revelation, and then in chapter 2 through chapter, uh, or verse 2 through verse 14, the summarization of it, and then when we get to verse 15, we get to the interpretation. So we have the occasion before uh, Belshazzar's death, uh, the summary, 2 to 14, and then in 15 and following, we have the interpretation that is given to us. Now, I want to say uh, that when we look at chapter 7, we want to review just a little bit so that we understand where we are when we go into chapter 8. A lot of material. I dumped a bunch on you, but I'm going to review it a little bit. In chapter 7, you have the four kingdoms. You have Babylon is described as the, the lion with eagles, royalty. And then the, the Medo-Persian kingdom comes, and it's like a, a bear. It has power, but it doesn't have the dignity of the king. And then you have the leopard. That's the swift one. And the Greek uh, kingdom is built on uh, the first great king, Alexander the Great, and how he just moved rapidly and conquered. And then uh, we come to the fourth kingdom, and we discover it is a horrible kingdom. It's going to cause all kinds of mayhem uh, within the nation of Israel and around the world. And that will be amplified for us when we get to the book of Revelation. Now, we also pointed out to you that when we look at this chapter, there are two Roman empires to talk about. There is the historic Roman Empire, and there's a difficulty, I'm going to say to you again, uh, in prophecy, sometimes knowing when the one man, the earthly king, is being mentioned, and then when does it go into something future. And I want to say to you, I have arbitrarily, and I think it's a good place to divide it, uh, is in verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. Now, I say, let's try to break it right there and say that's the historic Roman Empire. Then it says, it devoured it, and it crushed, and it trampled, and the remainder with its feet. It, and it, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, uh, and uh, it had ten horns, and then there was a little horn. I take it that's the futuristic or the prophetic Roman Empire is where, the way I like to describe it. And then in verse uh, uh, the latter part of verse 7 all the way through verse 14, it talks about all that this uh, king in the fourth kingdom is going to do. Now, I want to mention that last week we pointed out to you that when the word different is used, we have to automatically think, okay, how is it different? And the fourth kingdom, uh, we pointed out to you in this chapter, is one, and the king in particular, is one that crushes. He breaks, King James says, he breaks into pieces uh, those all around him. So he's, a, and it emphasizes the aggressiveness and the hostility of this fourth uh, king in the fourth kingdom. That's the first thing. He's a crusher. 
And then secondly, his kingdom is universal. It, it, it covers the entire earth. Now, watch it. That's not true of the earthly kingdom. We pointed out to you. The earthly empire started in Sicily when it was captured all the way back in 241 B.C. And this kingdom goes on all the way uh, to the final king who is killed in 1453 when he's in a battle over Constantinople with uh, Mohammed II. So that's the end of the, of the fourth kingdom. But it covers a period uh, that is conquering, beginning in Sicily, goes all the way up to southern France, go, uh, to southern England, goes to the western part, up to the Rhine River in Germany. It goes through France, it goes through Belgium and Switzerland. And all. So basically, the Roman Empire was that continental Europe that we think about. Now, this kingdom, under this little horn that we're going to read about in the interpretation section is, uh, is a universal kingdom. Look at verse 23. Then, thus he said, the fourth beast will be the fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth. So it is a universal kingdom. And then the one final thing in the major distinction that makes this kingdom different from the others is that it is satanic in its strength and power. And we'll see that in just a moment. Now, let's go with that little bit of a review. Let's go to verse 15 and listen to the interpretation and listen to how Daniel solicits information uh, from those who are on the scene. Notice verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. He sees some of the implications, and he's wanting to have more information. Now, we pointed out to you last time, he issues two inquiries. He has two questions. One question, the first one, he just asks, well, what does all this mean? And he gets a general answer. Daniel's not satisfied with that. So he comes back with a second question, and it has three parts, and he gets more information. Now, here's the first question. Notice when he's in verse 16. And I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Now, here's the interpretation. Here's the summary statement. These great beasts are four in number, and there are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one, Yahweh the God of Israel, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and for all ages to come. Daniel says, okay, that's great. We win. But tell me some more about this little horn. And so he asks another question. Second question begins at verse 19. Then I desired to know ex the exact meaning of the fourth beast. 
which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devour and crush and trample down the remainder with its feet. Tell me about this fourth kingdom, and in particular the king. So then he has a second part to the question, and the meaning of the ten horns. And then the third part of the question, and the other horn which came up before, uh, which uh, three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. Now, so he's asked a three-part question. Who is the fourth beast? What about these ten kings? And then who is this little horn that rises up? So he is asking for more uh, complete information. So then we come uh, to verse 21, and thus comes his answer. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days, that is God, came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So there's that review again. And then he says, thus he said, the fourth kingdom, that was the first part of his question, the fourth beast will be the fourth kingdom on earth, and it will be different from all the others, and it will devour uh, the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Absolute domination. That's the fourth kingdom. And then he says in the verse 24, as for the ten horn, that was the second part of his question, the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings who will rise, and then the third part of his question, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three of the kings. In other words, here's this fourth kingdom. is totally different. It has ten horns that are ten kings, and then there is this little horn, and this little horn subdues three of the first ten, so there's only seven left, point, they submit to his domination. Everybody with me? Now, notice that uh, he says he will be different from the previous ones, latter part of 424, and will subdue three of the kings. Then notice, class, verse 25. Here's where the satanic influence and identification comes through. And he will speak out against the Most High, wear down the saints of the highest, and he will intend to make alterations in the times and in the laws. In other words, he wants to get control of the schedule for the future, and he wants to set his own principles for living. And as a result of that, and they will be given unto his hand. He'll have that control for a time, times, and a half a time. Now, let's stop. I want to make an explanation on time, times, and a half a time. I'm going to show you four other passages that talk about the same time frame. Let me give you a clue. When you study 
these sections. You have to understand in prophetic literature, when it talks about a year, it's 360 days. Okay? 360 days. And in this passage, there's a time, 360 days, times two, and then a half a time. So you have one, two, and a half. You have three and a half years. Everybody with me? Now you say, how do you know that? Well, let's read the rest of them, and we'll see it. I want you to go on a little journey with me. Go to chapter 12, and we want to look at verse 7. Daniel chapter 12, and look at verse 7. How long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard a man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and he raised up his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. There's that same time frame again, three and a half years. Then we go to Revelation chapter 11. Now hold your place in Daniel. Don't want to lose it. Uh, but we go to Revelation chapter 11, chapter 11, and we want to look at uh, verse uh, 2 and 3. 11, 2, and 3. Notice what it says. And the instruction is to measure the temple. And then it says, and leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread under the holy city for, look at it, 42 months. What do you got? Three and a half years. See it? Different time frame. Then we go a uh, different way of expressing the same time frame. Then you go to chapter 12, and you look at verse 6. And this has to do with Satan's opposition to Israel. And it talks about the woman who represents Israel, 12.6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there might be nourishment for 1,260 days, three and a half years. Everybody with me? Then we got one more. We go to 13 and verse 5. Notice this is where... Satan is beginning to oppress uh, the world. And so when we go to chapter 13 and we, we look at uh, what is the verse? I've already forgotten. Verse 5, 13, 5. Notice what he says in 13, 5. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words, blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months, three and a half years. So what we have here, as we look at Daniel in uh, chapter 7 and verse 25, is the first reference to the prophetic time frame, the last three and a half years of the seven years of the tribulation, when the Antichrist has absolute control over the whole earth. Everybody with me? Time, time, half a time, 42 months, and so on. So we have this... Uh, uh, time frame that references when you go from Daniel to Revelation, it has to do 
with Satan and his Antichrist, the first and the second beast. And we'll study that a little later. Then notice, uh, after verse 25 and that description that's given to us, notice, but, verse 26, the court will be set for judgment. His domination will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness uh, of all the kingdoms under the whole earth will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Hey, we win. Amen. We win. Now, I want to say something to you. There's a lot of stuff there. And when we get into chapter 8, we're going to get even more. And we look at this book and we say, this is the word of God. But one of the ways we know it's the word of God is by what it teaches about the future. Fulfilled prophecy. How could Daniel be so accurate? He could not analyze human history and say, this is the way it's going to end. God has given him information. And the result of that, child of God, is you and I need to recognize he is God, a very God. He is in control of the entire universe. How dare we think he is not in control of you and me? Amen? And if he's going to take care of the nation of Israel, he's going to take care of us. We can trust him. Amen? Now, that's chapter 7, and then we go into chapter 8. Now, I just felt like I had to say that. And for, hey, you know, we're not just studying data here. This is information that helps us to understand how God's going to end all of this, and we end up ruling and reigning with him on the earth. Now, chapter 8. We're going to go into chapter 8 now. Remember, in chapter 7, you have the four kingdoms. The emphasis is on the fourth kingdom. It just skips over the second and third. We have great information in in chapter 2, uh, about the fourth, uh, the first kingdom. Thou art the head of gold. Then we have this fourth kingdom that's going to introduce us to this little horn that takes over under satanic control. But it just gives very little information about the two in the middle. Well, the two in the middle is the subject of chapter 8. All right, here we go. Now watch it. Here's the occasion. And the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me. Wow, look at that. He reigns for 14 years. But in the third year of his reign, this is before his assassination too, so it's prior to chapter 5. Everybody with me? Daniel got this information before Belshazzar was assassinated. Now, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, subsequent to the ones which had appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision and came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of uh, Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Eula Canal, the river. And then I lifted my gaze, and I looked, and behold, watch it, a ram which had two horns standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. And the longer horn uh, uh, was coming up last. 
Now watch it. Here's what this ram is going to do. Now one, well, let me identify it for you. When you go all the way over uh, a little bit further uh, in the chapter, notice in verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of Media Persia. Okay? We're skipping ahead and getting a little information. So here's this ram with two horns, Mede and Persia. The, the one who comes up last is the strongest. That's Persian part of it. It takes over the Median part. Then it, sa- it says in verse 4, I saw the ram budding westward and northward and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue his power, from his power, but he will do as he pleases and magnify himself. Now, when he moves westward, we've got to think about, okay, what is Ram, Medo-Persian, what's west? Well, it's Turkey, Syria, and Greece. Then he moves northward, that's Media. And then he moves southward, that's Babylon. Egypt, Syria, Libya. Everybody with me? Now, notice he's moving in all these directions, magnifying himself, and no one seems to be able to stop him. Then verse 5, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west. That is, he's coming from Greece. This is the third kingdom. It comes out of the west which includes Greece along with Turkey and Syria. Everybody following what I'm saying? All right. Then notice the male goat is coming from the west, from the surface uh, uh, and over the surface of the earth without touching the ground. Now look up here a second. It reminds me of cartoons. And the cartoonist wants us to understand how swift one of the characters is going. So as these lines like when he's flying. But his feet above the ground, that's one of the ways he describes the swiftness. And that's what we have here. He's moving so fast, it's like his feet are not touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. Now, we're talking about the third kingdom here, okay? And uh, this conspicuous horn before or between his eyes. And he came up to the ram, okay? Remember the ram? Medo-Persian kingdom. And he came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and he rushed at him with his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and uh, shattered his two horns. And the ram a ram had no strength to withstand him, so he hurled him to the ground, trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Total destruction of the Medo-Persian kingdom under the first king that comes out of the third kingdom, Greece. Then notice, then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, The large horn was broken. You remember that? 30 years old, he's an alcoholic, and he's crying because he has no more lands to conquer, and he's destroyed. 
And in place of it, in its place, there came up a fourth conspicuous horn, or four conspicuous horns, toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly uh, great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. Now, we've got to stop. We've got to deal with a major issue here. In chapter 7, we're introduced to the little horn. Out of what kingdom does he come? In chapter 7. Somebody say it. Fourth kingdom, right. We're in the third kingdom here. The Grecian kingdom. And we read about a little horn. Most people don't pick up on it. But you've got two little horns. The one that comes out of chapter, uh, or out of the fourth kingdom in chapter 7. And then you have a second little horn that comes out of the third kingdom, Greece. You ready? And things that are said about this little horn are similar to the things that are said about the little horn out of chapter 4. Observation. What we have in chapter 3 is Antiochus Epiphanes, a little bitty insignificant king except for his relationship to Israel and God's plan. And he is a foreshadowing. That's why there's so much information that's similar. He is a foreshadowing of the one that comes at the end who ends up being the Antichrist. Everybody with me? So now we're going to watch and we're going to see how he's described. Notice verse 9. And out of uh, one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the beautiful land. And he grew, he grew up to the host of heavens and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. And it, it magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifices uh, from him, and, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Now, observation. When we look at the stars and the host of heavens here, we have a little bit of an interpretive problem because you can read about the host of heaven and in many passages it will be a reference to uh, the stars and the heavenlies or the angels. In other passages, uh, like uh, in uh, Daniel 12 and Jeremiah 33 and others, it'll be a reference to Uh, spiritual leaders. And it's a tough call, but I think that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the leadership. The temple is destroyed, the sacrifices are stopped, and the leadership is conquered. Everybody with me? I think that's the way it ought to go. Then notice it says, and he magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host, and he removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on, on account of transgressions, the hosts were given over to the horn. Watch that. Because of sin, 
um, the host are given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifices, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard the ho- a holy one speaking, and another holy one says uh, to that particular one who was speaking, how long will this vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. Now here's the answer. He says, he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings and the holy place will be properly restored. Here we have another, a little bit of an interpretive problem. Evening and morning, that's familiar terminology. And we go to Genesis, it's talking about days. And in many cases, uh, throughout the scripture, that is true. But I don't think it's talking about evening and morning, the days. It's talking about the evening and the morning sacrifices. Okay? So the host are destroyed, the sacrifices are stopped, And then, how long will all of this last for 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices? It'll be three and a half, a a little over three years, three years and 70 days. And most people associate this historically with uh, Maccabees coming and uh, uh, Judas Maccabees, and they restore Israel and the dates are December the 16th of 167 B.C. through 164 B.C. So it's a little over three years. These morning and evening sacrifices are caused to cease. By who? The little horn that comes out of Greece, the third kingdom. Then verse 15, and it came about... When I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand, behold, the standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of the man between the banks of the Eula, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of this vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened. I want you to look up here a minute. It's going to steal my thunder a little bit later. But you know, the scripture says, Abba, Father. In other words, we can have intimacy with God. But the other side of the coin, when we stand in the presence of God, it's not like I'm standing in my daddy's presence. Am I making sense? And so Daniel has intimacy with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we'll see it again in, the, in one of the other chapters. It's extensively emphasized there. But Daniel was frightened. If God, the God of heaven, or the Lord Jesus, would walk into this room, we love God. This is a great church. We've got a great pastor. And the Lord is real to us. We honor him. But if the Lord, the Father, or Jesus, the Son, came in here, I'll bet you we'd react different than, hey, Daddy, 
Am I making sense? Yeah, he's daddy, but he's also God. Okay. He was frightened. I was frightened. I fell on my face. And he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, we've already mentioned this is the little horn that comes out of chapter 3. It's not the end time. That doesn't come until chapter 4. But this pre-shadowing or foreshadowing, some call it a double reference in prophecy. He, I would think, probably the best way to describe it, he is a type. This horn in chapter 3 is a type, a foreshadowing of the type of the little horn that comes in chapter 4. Now notice, and it'll talk about the time of the end, end times. And uh, it mentioned uh, the final period in verse 19. Uh, And it'll refer to the uh, days in the future in verse 26 and so on. So it's the end times, but it's not the end times that come at the end of the third kingdom. The third kingdom even goes on beyond the death of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. By the way, this guy in history, uh, he called himself Epiphanes, the illustrious one. Okay? The Jews called him Epiphanes, that is, the monster. Okay? Close resemblance in the Hebrew wording but totally different meanings. Notice, and it says, and he said, behold, I am going to let you know what will occur in the final period of the indignation, which pertains to the appointed time of the end. I'm going to tell you some things here that are going to apply later. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. We've already pointed out. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes are the first king. And the broken horn and the four horns that rose in its place represent the four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And in the latter period of their reign, when the transgressions have been have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled with intrigue. Now, I think we pointed out to you before, when you get to the third kingdom, Alexander the Great, he dies early, and his kingdom is divided between four of his generals. And those four generals have a part of this Grecian kingdom. But they don't have the power that Alexander the Great had. Everybody with me? That's what he's talking about here. And it's going to tell us a little bit about the future. And the broken horn and the four horns which arose in its place represent the four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And the latter period of their rule, when transgressions have run their course, A king will arise. Now, here's that little horn out of chapter 3. 
A king will arise, insolent, skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He's going to be influenced by satanic uh, power as well. And he will destroy in an extraordinary degree and prosper, prosper and perform his will. And he will destroy mighty men and holy men. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they're at ease. And he will even oppose the prince of princes. Now, that's a little bit of an interpretive problem. A prince of princes, we automatically think Jesus Christ. Well, that comes in the fourth. It doesn't come here. But what I think, and most uh, serious interpreters, evangelicals that hold to the inspiration of the word and so on, take this prince of uh, princes to include Yahweh, the God of Israel, uh, Israel itself, and the hope of Israel, which is the prince of princes. Okay? That's the way most take it. But he will be broken without human agency. Now, look at that. He, he doesn't get to, to live out his life. He's destroyed. And history tells us he died of some major disease that took his life uh, before, while he was still in his prime. And the vision of the evening and the mornings, which we're told are, is true, evening and morning sacrifices. But keep the vision secret, Daniel. For it pertains to many days in the future. Okay. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted, sick for days. When I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astonished at the vision, and there was none uh, to explain it. Now, here we have chapter 8, and I've just kind of, giving you a running commentary of what has happened. The ram is destroyed by the goat. Medo-Persia is destroyed by the Grecian kingdom. The Grecian kingdom produces a great Alexander the Great. He dies early in life, and four of his generals take over, and they don't have the power that he had. And as a result of that lack of power... There's one little horn that creeps in there, Antiochus Epiphanes. He calls himself the illustrious one. The Jews called him the monster. And what does it do? It tells us what's going to happen in the future, in the latter days, beyond this king. He doesn't even last until the end of the third kingdom. Uh, and, and then... We recognize he's pointing to that future time when the little horn in chapter 4 will be in power and bring uh, disaster to Israel and the world under satanic influence. All right. What I've done is tried to help you to understand 7 and how it goes together with 8. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time together today. Strengthen us. 
encourage us as we see the events of the day that you are still in control and you'll be in control when Satan has his day at the end. And he will be destroyed and we the saints win. We get the kingdom of God. We'll thank you for all that you're going to do and are doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.